You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate it. And I would just be, um, I felt it again this morning, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, Matt and Katie, thank you again for an amazing morning of worship. I feel privileged and pleasured by being able to be led into the very uh, throne room of God with you guys, and that's not something that always happens. So thanks again. Uh, Welcome the rest of you, too. I'm glad you're here as well. I hope you enjoyed worship as much as I did. Um, Some of you might be new. Check it out, uh, Midtown. And if I haven't met you, my name's Alice Collins, and I do a few things around here. I'm a part of the Midtown staff. Uh, My favorite thing is to work with college kids. I'm part of the women's leadership team, and I'm a member here at uh, Midtown as well. So we are wrapping up the series called Come and See, and if you've been with us, and I'm, I'm sorry if I sound redundant, but this is so worth repeating, you know that we've been talking about Jesus for the last eight weeks, and we've really been inviting you to come and see and investigate Jesus, and we've been doing that a couple ways. First, we've been having our time here on Sunday mornings, and we've been, if you're with us during the middle of the week at our Small groups, we call those MCs, and we've been watching this um, TV show called The Chosen, and I have truly enjoyed that. I'll tell you, I was not an early adopter. My husband was, and he must have told me a hundred times, you really need to watch this, and I was like, if you haven't watched it, please do. It's way worth your time. But Jesus gives each one of us this invitation And the invitation is to come and follow him. And he didn't give that invitation just to those of us sitting in the room. He's given a universal invitation for everyone to come and follow him. And so we decided to take some time to let you see who you might be following. You know, when I was growing up as a teenager, I loved my father. And my father was quite the colorful man. And my father, I can remember as a teenager, literally had this picture, but he did it many times. I was walking out of our kitchen and he hollered after me, Alice Marie. And I knew I was in trouble at that point, of course. And he, he said, you will become like the people you are hanging out with. And he got this look on his face. I now, as a parent, understand it was a cross between frustration and anger and fear and concern, and he would follow it with these two words, choose wisely. And you know what? He's right. We, don't ha- we now have the science today that tells us that you become like the five people you hang out with the most. And so we all ought to be asking ourselves the question, do I want to be like her? Do I want to be like him? And we want you to look at Jesus and say, I want to be like him. Because for Midtown, we have a big prayer, and you've heard it a couple times already this morning. I'm going to say it again because it's worth it. We want to see Austin to become more like heaven. And so our big prayer, really taken from Matthew 6, where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, the first thing that Jesus asked the Father to do for them is to bring his kingdom. So so Jesus taught them to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So since God sovereignly planted you and I in Austin, Texas, our prayer here at Midtown is that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done here in Austin 
as it is in heaven. And again, just like Josh said and, and Jake said, we believe that Austin will become more like heaven as we, the people who claim followers of Jesus Christ, become more like Jesus. And so you've also heard, you probably could repeat with me, we believe you should center your lives around three main ideas or goals, if you will. The first one being to be with Jesus. The second one being to be like Jesus. And the third one being to do the things that Jesus did. And we believe when we do that, we're going to look more like Jesus. And as a result of that, the area around us, which happens to be Austin, Texas, is going to look more like Jesus, or is going to look more like heaven. So the point of what we're doing today here is I get to talk about probably one of my favorite interactions in all of Scripture, and it's the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. Because what Jesus is going to give her, offer her, what Jesus offers us is living water, soul-satisfying, life affirming water that we can access at all time. So this is a really strange conversation, and it's not strange to us. Like, men and women talk to each other all the time. I talk to guys when I walked in the room. Some of them I knew, some of them I don't know. Like, we just talk to men and women talk to each other all the time. Not so in the first century. Um, not so in the first century at all. Not so probably in a lot of history. So I want to give you a little bit of history about why there's a problem in Samaria and why men and women don't talk to each other. So the problem in Samaria goes back, oh, a long, long, long way. So you can look at the whole story in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. That's four books of the Old Testament, 112 chapters. So my two minutes about the history is not going to get very much. But I'll give you the highlights of what the problem is. So back in the 7th century, well, actually before that, there's already been a kingdom split. So the kingdom was a whole kingdom, 12 sons, 12 tribes, the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. But there was a problem, and so they had already split by the time I'm going to start talking. So there was a northern kingdom whose um, capital was Samaria and a southern kingdom, Judah, uh, whose capital was Jerusalem. The, the, up in Samaria, the Israelites hanging out in Samaria got taken into captivity in the 7th century BC, and they got hauled off to Babylon, and there were some Israelites left in, the, in that territory, but what the um, Assyrians did was they repopulated that territory with foreigners. So in that, in that area, there were all the ites of the world, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. So think about the heights, ites and, and probably Assyrians as well. And what began to happen was the Israelites began to marry, intermarry with those other people. And God had warned them, don't do that. Because what will happen is your religion will become adulterated and you will no longer follow me purely, which is exactly what happened. So though they held to some of the uh, traditions of, and religion of the, of the Jewish background, they also married in these pagan um, rituals as well. So the southern kingdom gets taken into... My apologies. <laughs> the southern kingdom gets taken into captivity around the 5th century BC. They go to Babylon as well. Um, they serve your time up there. They come back into the kingdom. But see, what's happened is over this two, three centuries, four centuries, then there's been such intermarriage that those peoples are no longer Israelites, Hittites, Perizzites, 
Jebusites, they're no longer what they originally were because they're so intermingled. And so really, they become a new people group. We refer to them now as the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are in the land, and the Jews are coming back, and they're looking at these people, and they're thinking they're religiously flawed. They are racially half-breeds. There's just this genuine hatred between the Samaritans and those and the Jews. So um, I want to move on to, the, to, to read the passage uh, starting at John, in John 4, starting at verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria, that's Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of Jacob, the plot of the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Samaritans did not associate with Jews. So there's this problem. This woman is coming to this well. And Jesus reaches out to her and initiates this conversation. Really peculiar. Peculiar, first of all, because Jesus was a Jewish man. A rabbi, right? And religious men, I read a number of commentaries, and, and several of the commentaries said that religious Jewish men did not speak even to their own wives or daughters when they were in public. And certainly, since the Jews considered these Samaritans as really filthy half-breeds, a religious Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman was just a stunning thing. So Jesus is behaving at least very differently than men of his um, stature in his time. And then we have the woman. The woman's coming to the well in the middle of the day and without anybody. <clears throat> Equally weird things. Women came to the well in the cool of the day, morning or evening, because they were lugging 40 to 80 pounds of water from this well back to where they lived and water was necessary for life. It wasn't just necessary for them to drink, but if they were producing any food to eat, if they had any animals to take care of, they needed water for life. And they understood the connection between water and life. So this conversation between Jesus and this woman is really peculiar. Not to us, maybe, but to her for sure. But Jesus, even though she was who she was... Jesus reached across these boundaries, these racial, ethnic, educational, religious boundaries, and he initiates this intimate conversation with this woman. It's, it's just stunning. And Jesus does that all the time. He did it for me. He reached into my life when he knew exactly who I was, and he did it anyway. It's the thing I love about Jesus the most. Like, it totally is. He reaches across all these artificial boundaries. You see, this woman was of no value to the people around her. I don't think I was of much value to the people around me. But Jesus 
didn't, it didn't matter to Jesus. As a matter of fact, she was important to Jesus, so important to Jesus that he made a beeline to her at that well. He went through Samaria to, to see her and to share with her what, what was true. And you know what? This is really all background, <laughs> what I really want to talk about today. So having all that background, we're going to pick up in John 14, 4, starting in verse 10. Um, but before I do that, I just want to remind us, Jesus is thirsty and the woman's coming to get water for her daily life. We have an issue. We don't really understand thirst. I grew up in California and I boated as a kid. There was a reservoir less than 15 minutes from my house. And so we skied and we kayaked and we canoed and we did all that stuff. But sometime, maybe, my, maybe when I was in seventh or eighth grade, we, California went into a drought. Within a couple of years, my, the, my reservoir that I spent all my summers on was empty. And it stayed empty my entire uh, high school years. And then for a number of years after that, California was in a terrible, terrible drought. I remembered that you couldn't water your grass. I didn't own any grass, so it didn't matter to me. But you couldn't wash your car. Like, ever. You could water your grass every five to seven days, but you couldn't ever wash your car. But here's the truth. I would walk into my house when I was living with my parents or into my apartment, and I'd turn on the faucet, and there was plenty of water. I, I took a bath. I drank water. There was loads and loads of water. I don't understand what, it's be like, what it is like to be thirsty because there's water for us everywhere. The, if, if their well went dry... They didn't, they didn't wait for it to come back. They picked up and moved. Like, that's, we don't understand thirst. But this gal understood thirst and water. So she was really ready for what Jesus is going to have uh, to talk to her about. But Jesus takes that idea of thirst and water and flips it on his head and talks about a different kind of thirst. So starting in verse 10... Jesus said, answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. Don't miss what Jesus is saying about his water. Like, she asked this great question. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? And Jesus doesn't answer that directly. He just lays out the qualities of his water. The first thing he says about his water is, if you knew the gift of God, the water that he has for us is a gift from God himself. And then he tells her that it's living water. Now, living water wouldn't have been an odd concept because a spring-fed well, oftentimes springs were referred to as living water because the spring would refresh the well with fresh, clean water. So that might not have been an odd concept to her. So he tells her that this water is a gift from God, that it is living water, and that 
the kicker on this water is that you're never going to thirst again. And that's what draws her in. She's still thinking about water. And then he goes on to talk about this water becomes a, a well that springs up within us. So no longer do we have to go externally. No longer do we have to go outside of ourselves to get that satisfaction, that thirst quench that Jesus is talking about. That well is internal to us, and we always have access to it. And I can imagine her looking at him wondering, what are you talking about? So this well that's welled up in us that is now in internal, it's not just one drink. It's not, we're not, our thirst isn't quenched because we drank once of that well. The, our thirst, thirst can be quenched because we have an ability to continuously drink of the well that God's given us. The water that, God, that he's given us restores it rejuvenates, it causes peace, it gives calm, and lest I forget, the water wells up to eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but in the day in which we live, I'm just tired. Like, I'm tired of the fighting, I'm tired of the yelling, I'm tired of, I'm just tired of not knowing exactly what to do or getting in trouble because I didn't do it the right way. I'm just tired. And I think, I think about eternal life as that day I see Jesus face to face and I'm like him and we leave the dirt ball behind us forever, right? That's what I think about eternal life. But that's a lie. That's a lie. That's not what eternal life is. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I, I came that they may have life and life to the full. Not, not something in the future. Today, he came to give us life and life to the full. Do I access that life? Not as much as I'd like to. So, Mike, so somebody answer me this question. Why is it so hard for me to believe that? Why is it so hard for me to access that fullness? Why is it so hard for me to get my thirst quenched? Why? Jesus said he would give it to us. Jesus said... He desires us to have it. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I love Tim, um, Timothy Keller. Everybody calls him Tim Keller, but his book says Timothy, so maybe I, should, maybe I should say Timothy. Anyway, in his book called Encounters with Jesus, Unexpected Answers to Life's Biggest Questions, Keller says, Jesus says there is nothing outside you that can truly satisfy the thirst deep down inside you. To continue the metaphor a bit, you need... You don't need water splashed on your face. You need water that comes from either even deeper down inside you than the thirst itself. What Jesus is saying is, I can give it. I can put it into you. I can give you absolute, unfathomable satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of what's happening outside, regardless of circumstances. You know, here's what's really true. I believe that right here between my ears. I know that I know that I know that life is found in putting everything I have into Jesus. I know that's true. The problem is I don't always walk that out in reality. I don't always look at the circumstances of my life and own that. And that's on me. That's not on Jesus. So well water quenches physical thirst, 
But Jesus is offering her living water. And I would suggest that that living water is soul-quenching, life-satisfying, eternally available water to us. doesn't matter whether we're still walking here or whether we're walking there, but we have that soul-quenching water available to us. Starting, um, taking a look at John 4, 16 through the end of what we'll be talking about today, he told her, this is kind of an abrupt, I think, an abrupt change in direction. He told her, go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you, are, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. God hardwired human beings with spiritual needs. That's, that's just the truth. We need love, acceptance, security. Those are real needs. There's nothing wrong with those needs. We have those needs. And the desire is, God's desire is that we would find the fullness of fulfillment of those needs in him. And so Jesus cuts in this woman right to the chase because you see like everyone sitting in this room she is filling her spiritual cup with something other than God I did her particular choice was relationships so she'd been married five times and the guy she was with now wasn't even her husband and you know what I spent my 20s doing that I except I didn't have to marry them all because in the day and age in which we lived, it wasn't required. But that's what I did. I looked for guys to fill up that acceptance and love and affection and approval and all the things that God wired me with that are good and right. I was looking to men to fix that. And I got a newsflash for you. No, um, like, no, no disrespect to anybody in the room, including my husband, but you're pitiful pitiful substitutions and here's the truth as a woman I'm a pitiful substitution for you two and our jobs are pitiful substitutions the whole list of things that we use to fill our cups are pitiful substitutions for what Jesus wants to give us and yet we do it anyway um, David Foster Wallace who was an award-winning best-selling postmodern American novelists say that six times really fast. Um, a few years before he committed suicide, gave the commencement address at Kenyon College, 
And he said to the graduates, and this is a portion of what he said to the graduates in 2005. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that anything else will pretty much eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age, and I can attest to this, begin to show, you will die a thousand deaths before your family finally plants you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always afraid of being found out. That is the truth. Every one of those things I tried. And they're a pitiful imitation of what Jesus has to offer. And just so that you know, never, ever, ever do I get to do this, do I get to teach without God saying, hey, hey, and what about you? And so as I was, I was thinking about this and putting it together, and I was thinking about how this is so true from our lives. Some of you have children, and I bet a few of you, if you raised your hand, would tell me you already have a list of the things that they have to have for Christmas, right? If I get this, life will be good. If I, if I can have that, then I'll never ask you for another gift. Did any of you ever say that or hear that? Because I... If my parents were alive, they could probably testify that I said it. I certainly heard it from my children. If I just have this, I'll never ask you for another thing. That's a lie, by the way, but we use it. But it, it starts at our, in our childhood, and it just continues. If I, could, if I could get into this school or this grad program or marry this girl or guy or live in this place or have my portfolio say this or that, then then it would be okay, then it would be good, then I'd feel secure, then I'd feel happy, whatever, whatever. Fill, fill in the blank, whatever's true for you. And so as I was thinking through this, I, as I paused for just a moment, I heard this very still, quiet voice who loves me more than life itself say to me, so, what's your list? And just like the woman at the well, I said, I don't have a list. And just like Jesus... He affirmed me, really? And then he exposed my list to me. And I have a list. Many of you know and even met my amazing, beautiful, wonderful, fabulous, remarkable daughter a couple weeks ago. And she's lived away from home for the last nine years. And she is considering coming back to Texas. And I am begging God on a regular basis for, to keep my hands open. And, and to, because I want her to be where God wants her to be. And I don't know where that is. I wish he'd tell me, but he's not. Um, so I pray all the time that I keep my hands open. But I'll tell you the truth. I have said, oh my gosh, if Amy comes back to Texas, if she brings my grandson, that'd be life. It'd be life to the full. It would be joy. It would be all these things, and I'm not saying it wouldn't be. 
That's the thing about idols, is they, they help you, they support you, they encourage you, they give you life for a little bit of time. And then they disappoint you. And here's what I know. Amy has lived away from us for nine, almost nine years now. And she has come home eight of those nine years for the summer. Oh, around, <laughs> around week six, seven, maybe as long as eight, Cliff and I look at each other and go, And you know what? She feels exactly the same way. Like it's not, but she's not meant to meet my need for all those things. Acceptance, love, joy, comfort. That's not her job. And here's the thing that I figured out in the last several years that, that should make me stand up and take note. When I lay that responsibility upon anybody but God himself, I crush them. When I make Amy responsible for whether I'm happy, I crush her. She does not, and she's not supposed to, have the ability to stand up under my load. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with my load. It's not like I need more than you do, or you need more than I do. There's nothing wrong with our loads. God's saying, come to me for that. Don't go to your husband, your wife, your child. Just don't do that. They can't, they can't stand up under that. So I see this sweet gal, our sweet gal, our woman at the well, and I see her thinking, like if you watch the, um, if you watch the series, then you saw her. And before I ever saw the series, it was just like that in my mind, where the wheels are turning in her head as Jesus tells her about her, himself and tells her all these things, and she, like her mind is just kind of blown. Like she's like, I don't have any idea. Like, I don't know. So she goes to her bedrock, and her bedrock is, Messiah will tell me. Like, I know that the Christ is coming, and when he gets there, he's going to explain all this because I don't get it. Like, I, I really don't get it. And so she's still looking at Jesus as she tells him, I'm trusting the Messiah to explain this to me. And Jesus looks at her and says, that'd be me. Like, can you imagine? And then the wheels continue to turn and you see them slot in the places. And you see her come to that realization that he is who he said he is. And she runs with this most amazing joy back to her city. Now, let's just be real. Would she have been your first missionary to a town? Because I don't think she would have been mine. Like, this was a broken woman who was an outcast in this town. And yet, what Jesus did was so revolutionary for her, was so life-changing that she went into town, and she had an impact on that group of people. Like, that's just stunning. And those people believed because of her. The woman that was the outcast, the woman who was walked away from, they believed because of what she said. That's an amazing thing. And then Jesus decides to stay, right, in order for more people to have an opportunity. And remember, these are still the filthy Samaritans. Like he hasn't somehow 
all of a sudden transported himself back to the Jews, he, he brought his message to one of the most unexpected people. One of the most undeserving people, what we would consider to be undeserving. And that's what he did for me. And maybe that's what he did for you. Like, people will say, when Jesus found me, Jesus never found me. Jesus was always there. My problem was my face was flat down on a dung heap. And when I finally picked it up and saw Jesus, that changed my life. Jesus was always there. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.